on today's episode. For a really long time, we've framed science as something that they do that you don't need to worry about. You know, you see like a tire commercial. And it's like our scientists have been optimizing the best heavy weather tires. And it's people in white lab coats and stuff. And so I think for so long, gave people this idea of like, oh, the scientists are working on that. You don't need to understand. And so that has created some skepticism in people because we haven't taken the time to make sure that everyone has the same level of science literacy. And now there are people with really poor science literacy, and that is translating into distrust of science. I'm your host, Greg Fenvis. Stay tuned. This is One Big Question. Laurel Bristow is an infectious disease researcher here at Emory. And since the pandemic started, she's become basically a social media phenomenon. Hello, my little snow bunnies. There are a few things that I've been seeing on the internet lately that are a little frustrating or misleading. So I thought that today might be a good day to give kind of a COVID state of the union. There have been two main kind of ideas going around that I've seen uh, that I take issue with. And one is that everyone is going to get Omicron and the other is that it's time to treat COVID just like the flu and neither one of those is true. She's been posting videos on Instagram and answering questions about COVID-19. And the connections she's built with her audience are truly one of a kind. At last check, she's amassed close to 450,000 followers. Now, just to put this in perspective, on Instagram, I have 4,000 followers. Now, as an engineer, I know that scientists and STEM experts often get a reputation for being a little stuffy. First of all, what is STEM? It's science, technology, engineering, and math. And it can be hard to decipher when it comes to discussing their research or areas of expertise. But that's not the case with Laurel. In recent years, we've unfortunately seen how social media can be used to spread conspiracy theories, misinformation, and disinformation. But what about the truth? Laurel has shown that social media, with all of its eccentricities, can also be a powerful medium for truth-telling and myth-busting. And that's why we are here today. Laurel, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in and start with the big question. How can we better use social media and everything that makes it fun, relevant, accessible to combat disinformation and help educate people and spread knowledge and facts around the world? That's a good question. I think that's that's the question that we've been trying to answer for the last two years on social media. There's obviously been such a huge increase in the presence of scientists on social media and the visibility of scientists on social media because of the pandemic and because there is such a second pandemic of misinformation. And so I think that the the appeal of social media is that there's so many different platforms and so many different styles that there's a lot of options for people who are trying to do science communication to pick a style that works the best for them. Um, So I personally do everything within, within my Instagram stories, which was just kind of an accident that that took off so well, because it's just me speaking to people and I caption and it's like a, like a little 
you know, lesson, like a school lesson for people and people are receptive to that. Other people are really great at graphic design and making infographics, which are super helpful because those can easily be shared across platforms. Someone who's on TikTok can really succinctly give summaries and people who want just the basic facts are really attracted to that. Um, Someone on Twitter can make threads for people who like to learn by reading and like to share that way. So I think in the same way that social media is appealing to everyone to get an insight into other people's lives, to see how they present it via video or photos or, you know, clever words, we've taken that and we translate it into the way we communicate science to meet people on their level in a way that speaks to them, uh, rather than the traditional science communication of maybe just, you know, white paper publications or um, press releases that don't really connect with a broader audience outside of our own field of experts and colleagues. Scientists learn to speak to other scientists in scientific language with uh, scientific uh, understanding and a context. And as you think about speaking to a broad audience, how do you put yourself in in the frame of mind to talking to somebody in the grocery store or um, in a in a movie theater. Yeah, I think I, it's been an interesting experience for me because I think it just speaks to the fact that I am so passionate about what I do. Like I love infectious disease research. I love learning about it, and I like to teach other people about it because I'm so passionate about it. So it makes it really easy to communicate what I'm doing with other people because it comes from a desire that I really want them to understand the way that I understand so that they can feel as passionate about it as I feel. And so that's been super helpful in my in my science communication style to be able to understand the technicalities of it and the acronyms and the jargon and then say, okay, so this is what this paper is saying and it's really cool because here's what's happening. So I think that that's the, the most important part is just that our passion for what we do is conveyed through the way we educate other people. Happy Wednesday, my little cootie catchers. Now, unfortunately, the appearance of Omicron has rendered the majority of our monoclonal antibodies obsolete. This is because the synthetic antibodies can no longer appropriately recognize and bind to their target of the spike protein. So if you happen to know anyone whose argument against vaccines is that they'll just get monoclonal antibodies if they get infected, it's not really an option right now. Now, science seeks the truth. But in that process of seeking the truth, it's always contingent. There's new facts that come in, new studies, new data. And as a scientist, you understand that, that it is a, is a process. But uh, to a non-scientist, to uh, the general public, that could be very confusing. So how do, you, how do you explain that nature about scientific knowledge? I think... When we will look back on the pandemic and think about the things that we learned, I hope one of the most important things that most people can learn is to say, I was wrong about this. Here's what's happening now. Or to understand that information is going to change as time goes on and that you have to reevaluate things on a continuous basis. Um, I think I personally have been very upfront with the limitations of my expertise and my ability, and that's helped people also not only to relate to me, but to trust me that I, when I am wrong, I will say, yeah, I was wrong about this. You know, I t- said that I didn't think that we needed to get boosters right away. And then with Omicron and seeing how effective boosters are at protecting the elderly, like, yeah, I do think we all need to do that right now. I've changed my mind. I've updated based on the evidence that's available. 
And also just to be able to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll try to talk to someone who's more qualified and get back to you. So I think we, uh, you know, it's important with how science changes and updates and how broad the field is to be clear about your limitations and also be um, humble enough to say, like, I got that one wrong. Here's what we're actually doing. So you talked about the COVID-19 pandemic. So we've now been in it a little over two years. Uh, there are two-year anniversaries taking place now almost uh, almost every day. So let's go back two years or a little bit longer. What inspired you to start using Instagram and stories to talk about COVID-19? I, it's so crazy to think about it at this point, being two years into this. Um, March 12th is actually my like two-year anniversary of science communication on Instagram. And I remember it so vividly because uh, I was hired by Emory to build inpatient research at Midtown Hospital for the Hope Clinic, which is the vaccine and treatment evaluation unit that Emory has. Um, they didn't have any kind of infrastructure for, uh, you know, population surveillance studies or epidemiological studies. And so I was hired to kind of build that out so that we could be able to do that at that particular hospital. And then we were doing respiratory pathogen research, surveillance research. And then when uh, we realized that COVID was in Atlanta and in the hospital, we stopped everything so that we could make a plan for infection prevention for our staff um, and kind of talk about what we were going to do with those studies. And in the four days between stopping all of my studies and hitting the ground running with our inpatient therapeutic studies for COVID, I had some free time. Like I didn't, I didn't have anything to do for the first time, uh, you know, at work. And so I just posted an Instagram story. I had 600 followers. It was just friends and family. It was a private account. And I said, would anybody be interested in uh, hearing a little bit about COVID with some facts? Uh, I won't, you know, I won't subject anyone to a front-facing talking video if no one's interested, because in my opinion, those are like the second worst Instagram videos, um, second only to people who try to record an entire concert in 15-second intervals. And a few people said they wanted it. And so I just talked about what it meant to flatten the curve. And I got DMs from friends saying, would you mind making your profile public so that I could tell other people to watch it? And it's just moved from there. And the whole thing has been word of mouth from people who connect with the way that I'm explaining things or appreciate, um, you know, being given the facts the way that I present them. And so all of my growth has been just from people taking it upon themselves to share my account. So do you get feedback from your your followers and, and how do you use that feedback? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's it's definitely a balance. If If someone is interested in Using social media, especially to do science education, you have to figure out what your boundaries are going to be with interacting with your audience because there's a lot of people on the internet who are not incredibly nice. Um, and so you do need to protect yourself because science communication will do no good if you get burnt out from it. So I have found that the easiest thing for me is to set up an, an email account that's specific to my Instagram that people can click on to email me, you know, questions or ask about topics they want to hear about, but also to give me feedback because it's much easier to filter through that and see that. And I do occasionally look in DMs and it has been helpful. You know, people have said um, this auto caption option doesn't work. It's really hard to see the words like could you put the, everything on the screen at once for people who, you know, are hearing impaired and need to read stuff or, you know, can you 
can you explain these acronyms that you're using? Like you probably explained them a while ago, but I'm new to the account. And so it is it is really helpful. People have good feedback and you get feedback from groups that you might not consider. Like a lot of I've learned a lot about accessibility of Instagram stories from my followers, which I'm really grateful for because everything I can do to improve the way that I communicate and to be able to reach as many people as possible in an accessible way is like really important to me. Well, that's very constructive feedback, and it's it's a learning process. But I, I'm going to guess you also get some feedback from people who are skeptical about science, um, uh, question uh, the truth, question the facts. So let me ask you this general question. How do you think science has, has attracted so much attention and so much skepticism about its its role and its importance? That's a great question, and I think I spend a lot of time thinking about that. Um, I think for a really long time in our history, we've uh, like framed science as something that they do that you don't need to work worry about. You know, you see like a tire commercial, and it's like our scientists have been optimizing the best like heavy weather tires, and it's people in white lab coats and stuff. And so I think it gives for so long gave people this idea of like. Oh, the scientists are working on that. You don't need to understand. The scientists are doing it. And now we've gotten to a point where there is access to a lot of information on the internet and people are saying, wait, well, you have to explain this. Like, I don't, I'm not going to blindly understand. I'm not just going to blindly take this. And so that has created some skepticism in people because we haven't taken the time to make sure that everyone has the same level of science literacy because we didn't think it was important. And now there are people with really poor science literacy, and that is translating into distrust of science. So that's a lot of what I'm trying to do, too. And obviously, like, Emory is a huge part of this in the research that we do in the research communication that we do. But a big thing for me is that I have to see the difference between people who are science skeptical, who want to understand, who want to learn, who have, you know, fears or preconceived notions and kind of guide them and explain to them because they're just asking questions um, and tell the difference between that and people who have made up their mind about what the science is and what is right and learn to not spend too much time on them because there's not a lot that I can do when they're in that mindset, um, but to really bring people into the into the fold of science literacy who want to understand but maybe have just been given the wrong information over and over and over again. Do you think there are things that we could be doing better in, in higher education and scientific research as a as a university to be communicating um, what science is, why it's important, and how people can can use science in their lives. Um, I don't. That's a really good question. Actually, that's a kind of a question that I would ask of you and what we do, what Emory's policy is, or like what Emory tries to do to you know make science more inclusive or accessible. Because obviously, this is a fantastic uh, STEM university, and I work for Emory. And it's been wonderful to work along so many incredible scientists and researchers. But, you know, what kind of what does Emory do to attract the most diversity and what does Emory do? These are questions for you, of course. And what does Emory do, you know, to expose people who maybe aren't in STEM, uh, STEM driven? I'm what is the word I'm looking for? I haven't been out of college that long. Majors. Majors is the word that I'm looking for to just make sure that they at least have some sort of science literacy here. Well, it's a, it's a great question. I think we want uh, all of our students uh, to be able to, to understand science, to be able to ask questions, uh, to be able to think critically 
uh, about uh, about facts and a set of facts and to, to ask tough questions and uh, and that's something we we try to do in our uh, all our major programs and, and our curriculum. But in the in in addressing the broader public, which is part of Emory's mission, I think it's very important that we be able to provide people information in a way that uh, that understands where they're coming from, how they can learn, and how how to address skepticism and questions that may be different from a question that another scientist asks about, well, your hypothesis or your scientific method or your procedure or your data analysis. That's not going to be relevant to, to many, many people in the, in the public. And, uh, and diverse voices are really important. We have to understand where each individual is coming from, uh, from uh, their life experience, from their community, which may be very different from where a, a particular scientist or researcher is coming from. And so that's something that uh, I think Emory has a responsibility to work on. I think we've done a good job, but it's, it's a continual work in progress to get that feedback and make sure we're able to communicate to individuals in the public in a way that they're, they're going to understand it. Yeah, I think that's great. And I do, I think that Emory does actually do a very good job of it. There are a lot of events that I have been made aware of in the, in the Emory community that I think are so fantastic. The vaccine dinner clubs, obviously these things, you know, have been put on pause with, you know, the limits on gathering. But once we get back to a place where we can do it again, I just think that there is incredible initiative from the Emory community to create spaces and to create um, areas where these conversations can be had. And so I think it's just a matter of encouraging people to take uh, advantage of the things that are offered to them on campus and then also try to, you know, partner with the community to get the brilliant minds and the diverse population that we do have of people who are so smart and so experienced to talk to the public so that the public can benefit too and can ask their questions and really feel like they are connecting with the people who are doing the work on the ground. No, I agree. And I think there's a role for a public scientist. You're, you're a public scientist. Uh, uh, a lot of the work of scientists takes place in the clinic, in the laboratory, in, in the library, uh, sometimes just in your head. But we have, a, we have an obligation and I think a, a responsibility to also be able to, to communicate science to the public. So I like this concept of a public scientist, which you exemplify so, so well. Oh, thank you. And I've been, I've been very um, you know, grateful to have the support of Emory too, because I think that is a huge part of um, the trust that people will have in a scientist is when you have transparency, not only about the data that we have or how we collect it and everything, but also, you know, my affiliations. Like I can say that I work for this university and have the university, you know, support me. And obviously my Instagram account is my own and my, you know, my opinions and stuff on there are my own. But to be able to say I have access to this information because I work for this university that is so committed to science and to research and to bettering the world. I think that is huge for people to have trust in me, that I'm not just someone who's like operating in shadows and saying, you should just believe me because I say that you should believe me. Talking about trust, you also bring some aspects of your your personal life into your, your social media, including pictures of you with your cat, riding a Harley, hanging out with friends. So how do you, how do you decide what part of your personal life do you want to bring into your public self through social media. Yeah, I think it's been an interesting experience, particularly because 
everything started, this was my personal Instagram account before it was ever my science account. And it just started taking off. And honestly, I think out of, you know, kind of sheer laziness, I didn't feel like doing the work to separate the two. And so I often tell people, you know, you have to remember that this is the Instagram account of a scientist. It's not a science Instagram account. So you're going to get both. And I think that's honestly why so many people have been drawn to my profile, because it's not just science, it's me as a human being. And so they can see my whole self represented on my Instagram. Uh, now, it has, of course, changed what I post um, having this much attention on me. I still you know, post my social life and stuff, but I think I'm a little bit more careful of what I post or more cautious. Obviously, not everyone wants to have that much attention on them. So especially friends and family, I always make sure that they're okay being in posts before I post it. Um, and I kind of, uh, for my own safety, curate when I post things, don't do stuff in real time anymore and that sort of thing. So it has it has changed how I post a little bit, but primarily I think, I think a lot of the reason that people want to connect with me is because I include the personal and the professional on there at the same time so they get an idea and really see me as a person. But I mean, I would ask you the same thing too. You mentioned you have 4,000 Instagram followers, which is not an insignificant amount. So how do you think about what you post, especially being like in such a prestigious position as the president of a university? I would imagine that that would be uh, take some thought about how you want to present yourself on social media. Well, I'm an old guy, so I started using Twitter. I, I don't think people use – I don't know if anybody uses Twitter anymore, but I have over 20,000 followers on Twitter. And uh, just – I'm still still learning learning Instagram. But it's a, it's a good point. And um, with my daughters and my grandchildren, my wife Carmel – they're 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 the uh, the first editors about what I post about uh, work outside the university, our lives outside Emory University. So it's always a balance, and uh, I agree with you. I want people to see me as a as a whole person, not just as the president of Emory University. And so it, I'm always looking at you know what's the what's the right role to uh, to be talking about some of the things uh, personally, what's happening with my family, our life, our travels, our kids. Um, sort of have a, a, a embargo on showing photos of the grandkids. Yeah, uh, very but, smart move. Uh, but uh, but I check with my daughters and my wife if this is this is okay. But we're always uh, experimenting, and uh, Instagram Stories is a great way to experiment. It's a uh, it's uh, the, these are short uh, videos. You can be quick, and they're not there forever. Yeah, that's I, that's funny. You and I are actually like kind of reverse because I have like six thousand followers on Twitter, and I like just got on there or just started using it regularly. So you'll have to give me some tips for how to use Twitter better. Well, as I said, I'm old. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure Twitter's as popular as it used to be. So it's Instagram and TikTok now. Well, uh, Laurel, uh, one last question. As COVID is receding, we hope, and it's not going to be over for a while, but what will you be talking to your audience about next and how will you keep this momentum going that you, you've built up? That's a good question. I don't know that I want to, honestly. Um, it has been a lot for the last two years and I, I do feel very grateful. I have such lovely people for the most part who follow me and who, I, you know, when I express that I don't know what it, the Instagram account would be, if I would continue posting science, if it would go back to my just being my personal Instagram, Instagram account, people are very... Um, supportive of whatever I want to do. But they have also, you know, expressed a lot of interest in me talking about a more diverse um, 
topic than just COVID. You know, I mentioned we were talking about HIV recently um, because of a conspiracy theory about COVID vaccines causing HIV. And I was explaining stuff and I just casually said, you know, let me know if you guys want me to talk more about HIV. And people were so excited about it. They want to hear about HIV. They want to hear about TB. They want to hear about Ebola. So it could be possible that, you know, I let myself off the hook for the volume of posting I had been doing during the pandemic, but then continue to educate just about infectious disease in general, which is obviously something that I'm very interested in and passionate about. So we'll just have to see what happens going forward. But I definitely don't, I don't feel compelled to like keep the numbers and keep up like this. I have my day job here, which I really enjoy. I like being in the mix of active research and I like talking to patients in the hospital and I like doing all of that stuff. So I don't, I don't have a desire to make social media my full-time thing. I'm very happy to have it as a, a hobby that I can enjoy when I want and step away from when I want. Well, if I have a vote of one, I hope you do keep it up because of the importance of being able to communicate about science in general, but especially about infectious disease, which uh, is still going to be with us after COVID. Yes, of course. Thank you so much. Well, Laurel Bristow, thank you for joining me today. This has been very instructive and very helpful and, and I hope entertaining also. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been great.